I'd like to have you turn to the book of Jonah. It's such a small book, it may be difficult to find. It's in that portion of the Old Testament we call the Minor Prophets. They're certainly not uh, minor in content, but uh, quite small, and therefore they're called Minor Prophets. If you have uh, difficulty finding it, it's on page 1290 in the New American Standard Bible. And if you look and give up, you can always turn to the index. It's, uh, it's perfectly all right. It comes uh, a little bit after Hosea, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah. In John's little letter, he uh, speaks of Jesus, who is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And uh, those five little words, not for ours only, sounds almost like a throwaway line, but it's not. It is, in my mind, the primary motivation for evangelism. John says that uh, the Lord, because of his atoning sacrifice, made satisfaction. God is satisfied, and therefore we're, we're on the inside because of what he did. But uh, we shouldn't be smug and complacent because we're in. The gospel is not for our sakes only, but it's also for the whole world. The uh, whole Bible is uh, essentially an evangelistic book from beginning to end. The uh, Great Commission doesn't begin with Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8, but uh, all of the Bible, even the Old Testament, speaks of our responsibility to speak truth to the world. It's not for us only but it's also for the whole world. Uh, Jonah's an interesting little book. It's fun to study, bite-sized and easy to digest, and uh, no pun intended. The, uh, <laughs> the uh, book divides uh, very nicely into two parts. The first two chapters describe Jonah's great commission. The last two chapters, uh, his recommission. The first three verses give the setting for the book. We're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa, found a city which was go- uh, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We don't know much about Jonah. I don't know if he was tall or short, thin or fat, old or young. And we're certainly not told very much from uh, these opening verses. About all we know from this passage is that he was disobedient. And with that, almost all of us can identify We're told in 2 Kings that uh, he prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II, which tells us that he was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel, and that he prophesied during the middle of the uh, 8th century, during a time when Israel was in decline. Now, if you had looked at uh, the nation, you probably would not have come to that conclusion because they were at the apex of their prosperity and Everything looked good from the outside, but uh, inwardly they were very complacent, cold, disinterested in fulfilling the task that uh, God had given to them. 
It was God's intention that Israel be a light to the nations, but uh, they just huddled around the light and warmed themselves by it, and they were really disinterested in sharing the light with anyone else. Very complacent. I uh, heard of a slogan from a Wisconsin dairy last week. It said, our cows are not contented, they're anxious to do better. But uh, that could not have been said of Israel. They were fat and happy and self-contained and self-satisfied. Jonah's name means dove, which is significant because the dove is consistently a symbol for Israel in the Old Testament, in the book of Hosea, in the Psalms, and in the extra-biblical Jewish literature. Israel is referred to as a dove. Which leads me to believe that the story of Jonah is a parable concerning Israel. What Jonah did or failed to do is what Israel had failed to do. It's a sort of living parable of Israel's failure. Now, uh, I want to hasten to add that I believe that Jonah was a real person He lived in real time, and that the book of Jonah is real history. Uh, I do so not because it's any easier for me to believe that a fish swallowed a man than it is for you. I believe that simply because I have to, because the Lord Jesus did. In quoting the book of Jonah, the Lord takes very seriously the fact that this is real history. And because he's Lord, I'm not at at liberty to question his interpretation of the Old Testament. He believed that Jonah really lived in the 8th century and that he was really uh, eaten by a fish and that all of these things actually occurred in in time. So, um, though you may have some problems and I may have some problems with some of the things we read in the Bible, yet our Lord took these facts seriously and, and we must. Now, Nineveh we're told was a great city, and this is the place to which Jonah was directed. The uh, name of the city, Nineveh, was used in two senses in ancient times, very much as we use uh, the word Los Angeles. We think of Los Angeles proper and greater Los Angeles, and the ancients used Nineveh in those same senses. There was Nineveh proper, which was a fairly large city, And then there was greater Nineveh that was uh, composed of the city of Nineveh and three or four suburbs surrounding it. Made a vast complex, uh, some 25 miles by 15 miles, that enclosed about three-quarter of a million people. The Greek writers say that Nineveh was by far the biggest city of, of ancient times. And this is where Jonah was sent. And if you want to identify, you might think of yourself as being sent to New York or Seattle or Los Angeles, or any of the other great cities of our, of our time. We're told that Nineveh was full of wicked people. The uh, wording of verse 2 is significant. Jonah was told to cry against Nineveh because their wickedness has come up before me. It doesn't say its wickedness. Nineveh wasn't a wicked city. Nineveh was just full of wicked people. And that's what makes cities wicked. Seattle, Los Angeles, New York, Tokyo, those are not wicked cities. They're just full of wicked people. 
And when you get a lot of wicked people together, uh, you have a lot of uh, distressing things going on. Pollution and crime and violence, blight and uh, divorce and suicide and a lot of heartbreak and a lot of pain, a lot of coldness. Jesus said, because of the wickedness of the world, the love of many will grow cold. And that's what's happened in our cities. They're just loveless places. I heard the other day of a taxi driver in New York City who almost hit a little Jewish lady as she was crossing the street. He stuck his head out of the window and said, look out! She says, why, you going to try again? <clears throat> that's, uh, that's the coldness of our big cities. And uh, they're that way because of people, you see. And this is where Jonah was sent. And Jonah didn't want to go because he conceived of the Ninevites as the enemy. That was the head of the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrians were the enemies of Israel at this time, and he just didn't want to go. What he didn't realize is that the Ninevites weren't the enemy. They were the victims of the enemy. Paul gives us a little peek behind the scenes in Second Timothy when he says, The servant of God must not strive, but be gentle with all men, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if peradventure they may grant deliverance to those that have been captured by Satan to do his will. The real enemy is Satan. It's not the unbelieving world. Nineveh represents in this book and in our own thinking the, the world outside of Christ, the unbelieving world. And we tend to be threatened and afraid of them and we shrink from the world because we think that's the enemy. But they're not. They're not our antagonists. They've been victimized by the enemy. The, the reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh was because they smoked and they drank and they cussed and they played cards and they did all sorts of wicked things and he didn't want to go. Jonah wasn't fleeing from God. He was fleeing from Nineveh. He knew that God would go wherever he went. The power of God is not like radio waves that get thinner as you get farther away from the source. He just didn't like the Ninevites. They weren't his kind of people. And so he went due west. Nineveh was east. And he went 180 degrees wrong. Legged his way down to Joppa. Tried to blend in with the crowds. Joppa was a Philistine city, one of the major seaports of the biblical, of the biblical period. Tried to lose himself there and eventually booked passage on a cargo vessel bound for Tarshish on a Phoenician vessel. Uh, Tarshish, as best we know, was on the west coast of Spain. That's about as far away from Nineveh as you could get without falling off of the earth. There's a town over there called Tarsessus, and many people think that's the uh, town that's referred to here, but I have a, had a professor who told me that he thought that the word Tarshish is used in the Old Testament the way we use the word Timbuktu. Timbuktu is a real place in Central Africa, but, but when we use that term, we're thinking of the ends of the world. And that apparently is what Jonah is trying to do. He wants to get as far away from those wicked Ninevites as he can get. 
And interestingly enough, he wants to get away from the Phoenicians as well. These uh, cargo boats usually had 50 to 60 sailors who rowed them. They also had sails, but uh, when the wind was quiet, they were rowed. And they were Phoenicians, and everyone knows what sailors are like, and the Phoenicians were the worst of the lot. Notoriously decadent, promiscuous, permissive in their sexual practices. And Jonah didn't want anything to do with them. So he went down into the hold of the ship to get away, because after all, God's people ought to be separated from sinners. We're told in verse 4 that the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became exceedingly frightened, and, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. That verb can be translated either had told them or told them, and it, and it seems much better to translate it he told them because he's not talking about, the author's not talking about some prior incident. He didn't walk on board and tell them he was running from God. He walked on board and ran from them. But in the course of telling where he was from and who his God was, he told them that he was running from the Lord God of Israel. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord. That's the Lord God of Israel. And said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us. For thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. There are a number of things that strike me about this account. The first is that these uh, Canaanite sailors were far more humane than Jonah was. He had written off three-quarters of a million people. And they were willing to risk their lives for his miserable skin. As Jesus put it, sometimes the children of this age are far wiser than the sons of light. They actually had a better perspective on things than Jonah did. They had a higher reverence for human life, greater concern for him. They tried their best to save him. Secondly, it strikes me that these men were more religious than Jonah. When the storm struck, they began to pray. What a rebuke to Jonah to have the captain, a Phoenician captain, rebuke Jonah for his lack of prayer. Well, they were idolaters, polytheists. They believed in many, many gods, but at least they were men of prayer. They were looking for God. They were seeking help. They knew how desperate their lives were. 
and they wanted help. Do you know that people outside of Christ are looking for God? Do you know that? It is true that Paul says no one seeks God, but the verb that he uses is a compound verb that means no one really seeks for God. That is, no one makes that his sole preoccupation. But people do seek for God. C.S. Lewis talks about the time that he was walking with a friend of his across the campus of Maudlin College, one of his colleagues, and and, uh, they were talking about the Christian faith. Neither of them were Christians at the time. They were both skeptics. And suddenly his friend stopped in mid-stride, and he said, Rum thing, rum thing. It does seem that the whole thing is true after all. And Lewis said that really moved him because he realized that he had that same nagging certainty himself. He just knew that it had to be true. He was looking for something or someone to believe in. You know there are people like that out there. We tend to write them off because they seem so disinterested. They don't go to church. They don't have the same moral stance always that we do. Sometimes it's better than us, but sometimes it's not. But way down deep inside is that nagging feeling that there has to be something else out there, something that I'm missing. Something's not right. They're looking for help. A couple of months ago, there was a review of Richard Lehman's book on Dashiell Hammett, entitled The Shadow Man. And Time Magazine had an ex- excerpt from the book. Dashiell Hammett was the author of the Thin Man series. Those of you that go way back, like I do, to the 30s and 40s, will remember sitting around the radio and listening to the Thin Man. But uh, Lehman says, by 1947, Hammett had all but given up attempts, attempts to regenerate his writing career, and he complained to an acquaintance that most days he saw no reason to get up in the morning. Though he enjoyed solitude, at other times Hammett craved the sense of camaraderie that alcohol gives. Just after he returned to New York, he learned that a woman who had served in the USO on ADAC was living in Manhattan. He asked her out for dinner and night clubbing. They began the evening in Midtown and drank their way to Harlem. As Hammett got drunker, he got louder, ruder, and more talkative. Finally, at nearly five in the morning, his date had had enough, and she asked him to call her a cab so she could go home. When he refused, she hailed a cab herself. As she was entering the car, Hammett begged her, Please, don't leave me alone. Now, we tend to write people off like that because we don't think they're looking for anything. But the hard circumstances of life drive people to the end of themselves. And there's a great deal of despair and loneliness and hurt there that we need to be aware of. I picked a hitchhiker up once, a young man that was hitchhiking to uh, Berkeley, a student at Cal. We uh, chatted for a while, and I pulled over to the side of the freeway to let him out. He got out of the car, and... I just uh, asked him as he was getting out, do you have any interest in, in spiritual things? And he got back in the car and sat down, and he said, you know, I've been looking for God all my life. Can you tell me how to know God? Now, not everybody is that open, but uh, with most people, that hunger is there. Second, the third thing I observe about these Phoenician sailors is that they really were much more responsive to God's will than, than Jonah was when they were told that his God was the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land 
they became extremely frightened. And uh, then in verse 14, the author tells us, They called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish. And then in verse uh, 16, Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That phrase, they feared the Lord greatly, is a term that's used all the way through the Old Testament for real belief, for conversion and worship. When Abraham came down from the top of the mountain after his uh, willingness to sacrifice Isaac, his son, the Lord said to him, Now I know that you fear me greatly. That's the highest... uh, Commendation that can be given. And uh, we're told here that these men feared the Lord greatly. In our parlance, they, they were saved. Jonah didn't get any of the benefits of it. God wasn't hindered in any way by his disobedience. He still got the word to these men, but uh, Jonah missed out. He ended up in the drink. And uh, we're told that from the bottom of the sea, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. I won't read through chapter 2, you know the poem. When he came to the end of himself, he asked for help. The Lord had prepared a fish. He uh, swallowed Jonah, transported him to the coastland, to the coast of, uh, of Palestine, unloaded him there, and Jonah made his way back to Nineveh. No more delays or detours. He probably stopped to get his pants pressed, but other than that, (coughs) he was obedient. Went back to Nineveh. We're told in verse 3 that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days walk. That is, it would take three days to walk through the city. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he began to preach. He cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a simple message. It's only five words in Hebrew, but it's a very straightforward message. The word that he uses for overthrown is the word that's used elsewhere for the destruction of Sodom. So he lays it on the line. And he doesn't even have a chance to give the altar call. They respond. They were prepared. The hard circumstances of life had prepared them. For this time. I was walking across the campus of Foothill College once in, uh, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and I saw a young man sitting on a grassy knoll. He was staring off into space, and my appointment was uh, late, so I sat down and began to talk to him and found out he had just come back from Vietnam. And he was in the aeronautics program at Foothill College, wanted to be a pilot. And uh, we chatted for a while, and I said, Alan, do you have any interest in, in spiritual things? And he said, you know, I was just sitting here thinking that I need to ask Christ into my life. And as it turns out, he had a mother and a grandmother who had prayed for him for years, grew up in a Christian family, went to Vietnam, and the Lord tracked him down there through a squad leader who was a committed Christian and who shared the gospel with him. And uh, all of a sudden, his life just began to cave in, and this was the point of decision for him. He was ready. He didn't have to be prepared. And there are people like that out there as well who are ready to respond, and that's what happened to the Ninevites. Jonah got the first five words of this uh, 
sermon out of his mouth. And they said, nope, you don't have to say anymore. We believe you. And uh, the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let the men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. The word that's translated relented here means to take a deep breath. It means to heave a sigh of relief because he didn't have to act in judgment. Their repentance was real. And you would think that Jonah would be so excited. But uh, he wasn't. He was really miffed. In chapter 4, we're told that it greatly displeased Jonah. Literally, it was an evil, a great evil to Jonah. He was really put out. And he became angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, is Isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Jonah says, I just knew that's what would happen. I knew you were that kind of God. He didn't like it at all because they were his enemies. He didn't like it that God showed grace to them. And he grew angry, and anger almost always leads to depression and suicidal thoughts. And in verse 4, the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Are you justified in your anger? And then the Lord proceeds to teach him. Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. He he sat out there apparently for 40 days in the hopes that God would still waste Nineveh. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from the discomfort. That's the same word that's translated calamity in verse 2, by the way. Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. He really liked that plant. A little castor bean that apparently grew rapidly and covered his head and and shielded him from the heat. And uh, he just loved that, that little plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered and it came about when the sun came up that God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Are you justified in being angry over the plant? And Jonah said, Right. You kill my plant. (laughs) 
Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? The uh, idiom, 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand, refers to children. 120,000 children in the city of Nineveh. Jonah loved plants. God loved people. As my friend Bob Smith, Smith puts it, people are God's most important product. He loves people. That's where his heart is. Jonah loved his plant. And you know, this uh, is funny. It's humorous when you read it, but it ceases for me to lose its humor when I think of how angry I can get when some plant in my garden gets eaten by a bug or when the kids in the neighborhood tear up my yard that exercises me and I have to ask myself the question what is, what is it that stirs me up what rouses my passion what makes me angry what frustrates me what breaks my heart things or people see it's the plight of people that breaks God's heart it's things that get to us because our things give us comfort. People make us uncomfortable, particularly wicked people. The real question, as far as I see it, is one of, of ultimate worth. What's ultimately valuable to us? Is it something or is it human life? Things don't last. They're transient. As the Lord tells uh, Jonah here, the plant grew up overnight, it perished overnight, it won't last, it's transient. But people are forever. They're eternal. They're the only eternal things on the face of the earth. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 not to lay up treasure on earth where moth corrupts and, and things rust and disintegrate, but lay up treasure in heaven where, uh, where moth does not corrupt and things don't rust. And the treasure he's talking about is people. The only thing going to heaven is people. So we need to lay up people in heaven. We need to send people there. And the question I have to ask myself is this. Do I love people as the Lord Jesus does? Red, yellow, black, white, cultured, uncultured. Clever, crude, moral, immoral. Do I love them just like they are? God does. Am I willing to befriend them? The Lord was. He was the friend of sinners. That name was constantly applied to him. And the only conceivable way he could be, the, be called the friend of sinners is to have a lot of sinners that he called friends. And I have to ask myself the question periodically, how many, how many sinners can I count as real friends? Not just acquaintances, but friends. Have I cultivated friendships with non-Christians? And am I in contact with them as the Lord was? He ate and drank with sinners. The uh, religious world of his time uh, charged him with that as a sin, but of course 
truth of the matter is he wasn't ashamed to eat and drink with sinners because, as he put it, a surgeon comes to, a physician comes to provide for the sick. So that's where I'm going to spend my time, with those that are sick. And can I be gracious and non-condemning to non-Christians? Can I set them at ease, or do I get uptight? Am I threatened by them? The New Testament tells us that the Lord came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We have a tendency to condemn people for the wrong things. You know, it's not their sins that separates them from God. It's not the fact that they're drunks or drug users or they swap wives or they do any number of things like that that offend us. That's not what separates them from God. It's their unbelief. It's that they have never believed in Jesus Christ. Jesus said when the, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will convince the world of sin that they do not believe on Me. That's the great sin of which we all are or were guilty. And the Lord just had a way of setting people at ease. They, could, they didn't feel threatened in His presence. And then can I really be bold as the Lord was, straightforward, always gracious, always kind, always sensitive to people's needs, but bold about my faith. I read this past week of the funeral of Louis XIV of France, and uh, Jean Marchion was the bishop of Clermont at that time, and it was his task to preach the funeral oration, and he was told not to come on too strong because the kings of Europe would be gathered there for the funeral. So on the day of the funeral, he mounted the uh, high pulpit in the uh, Cathedral of Notre Dame, and he looked down over that vast crowd, heads of state from all over Europe, and he was tempted to um, shrink from his task. But he said he felt a great boldness overwhelm him, and he began his funeral message by saying, Gentlemen, in the hour of death, no one is great. And then he proceeded, proceeded to preach the gospel. Can we do that? Can we love people as the Lord did? Can we befriend them regardless of their lifestyles? Can we remain in contact with them despite the things that they do that might otherwise put us off? Can we be gracious, tender, sensitive, loving, but at the same time bold and straightforward about our belief? You ever wonder why the Lord chose such a loser like Jonah to go to Nineveh? Well, it's because that's the only kind of people he has. There aren't any other kind of people. We're all like Jonah. We all would shrink from the task. But uh, the Lord delights to work with us. He doesn't have to. He's not dependent upon us. He didn't need Jonah to reach the uh, Phoenician sailors, but he wants to use us. He wants us to have the joy of being his agents for reconciling the world to himself. Let's stand together and pray. Father, keep moving us by your word to act according to the truth and keep warming us with your love so that we see people and love people as you do. Deliver us from our tendency to enjoy what we have here, the fellowship that we have with one another. 
the love that we share because we're part of your body. And uh, teach us to break out of the circle of our uh, uh, the friendships in which we're so, so secure and begin to reach out toward people in need. Use us, Lord, as your, your instruments to bring healing and wholeness to the world. Help us to start with those closest to us, those that we know now that are in our circle of friendship, that need to hear of your loving and saving thoughts toward them, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.